All right, Lexi, thanks for coming on the pod. Um, good to chat to you outside of the Instagram DMs for once. Thanks uh, for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on, man. Um, you're the first physiotherapist that I've had on the podcast, uh, which is good because I've spent a large part of the podcast ragging on physiotherapy. So it's good to get somebody who knows their shit on. Yeah. I'll probably rag against them even more. So. <laughs> Yeah. Not a change of teams that's gonna happen. Alexi is petting his his cat currently as well while he's he, while he's uh, chatting away. Just for you guys who are listening on Spotify, so it kind of looks like a Doctor Evil sort of scenario. Um, so I guess uh, for for people who are listening who maybe haven't followed you yet on Instagram, you know you've posted some really great stuff up on there that's very evidence based and at times is is calling out a lot of the misinformation in the industry were you always within that evidence-based sphere or did you have to come to it and and what was it that that pushed you into that sphere was it something you read was it somebody you talked to um i'd say i started my career and i'm gonna say like my first clinical rotation i was pretty apathetic because I, I didn't think i was going to actually become a physio i was doing my master's and it was just to finish it to pivot into something different right. um because i didn't really like a lot of the stuff that was done um but then i one of my supervisors showed me like an adam meekins blog and that was like a, a snapshot moment he's a big guy who calls out nonsense and everything and it was all the doubts that i had against manual therapy were kind of confirmed so it kind of mm. launched me into there uh after that when i finished my clinical rotations i felt really hard into McKenzie, like a mechanical diagnosis and therapy. I would say it was a good launching pad because I don't agree with most of the things they say now. Um, but the way they, it was a, like, they were questioning a lot that was done in physio and they were teaching you to think systematic way, which is really useful. And I still use a lot of, which is maybe not for the same reasons they do and not the same way. Right. Um, but it launched me in there. And I'd say like when I, I don't want to say achieve my final form because <laughs> I want to keep growing and I don't think I'm not, I'm not sell from Dragon Ball. Yeah. Um, but I'd say like what really got me into the groove that I'm at right now um, is that I started reading basically from the McKenzie uh, references because they do have a lot of references and it could never answer like the questions that I had and the doubts. And I realized a lot of it where it was based on assumption. And if you prove them wrong, often they didn't hold up. So um yeah it was a big moment where i started really really overconfident being like ah you don't know mckenzie that's why you're a stupid therapist and i was like well it's not that great either yeah so going from really like a firm believer into someone that's way more skeptical made me like basically i don't know but very like i'm skeptical of everything now including the things that i do on a daily basis like i have this law that whenever i hear myself saying Oh, I know that for a fact. I go mm -hmm. back and check on PubMed, and often it's like, "Oh no, I actually don't know that." And then yeah, I just learned something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I guess it, there's always so much changing in terms of our understanding of the human body. It's such a complex biological system, and I usually try to keep things as as a coach training people to very base principles when I'm trying to go off things that I feel like I really strongly know. And then a lot of stuff outside of that, I know, is going to be subject to, to changing based on new evidence emerging. Yeah. And it's okay, like, as long as you're willing to adjust to the evidence, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so that's the big one. Like that, that ties into the, the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about, which is, um, you know, I, I actually had followed your page for a little bit before I personally started posting memes. And, you know, we've talked about this before, how like, um, you know, you can post really good educational content on Instagram and, and hope, you know, with, with the best of intentions that that is going to be enough to combat some of the crazy shit we be, see being put out there. Um, and I know from my own experience, I did that for years and did not really see an awful lot of people's eyeballs being drawn to that and, and see it have much of an effect at all in terms of um, getting people to question some of the, the things they're being fed online. But, um, you know, we both put up stuff that is at times maybe seen as controversial because it is um, questioning the, the people specifically who are putting up um, misinformation online. And I guess the question that I have to pose to you is, you know, do you think it is a, a professional obligation to, to call out this misinformation because... In, in some ways, like the algorithm rewards us and nobody else is going to police us. Um, certainly not Instagram, as we've seen with some of the pages that have flourished on there. But yeah, it's actually very topical because uh, even today, um, I was looking at an Eric Kressley post. I don't know if you're familiar with the guy. Yeah, like I am. The tall lifter or whatever. Yeah. And one of his posts was literally, I'm not kidding. He was using terms that I cannot even use legally in Canada as a physical therapist. He was saying, he, uh, yeah, he was giving a course along with the Fascia Academy. And I checked, none of them seem to have like a degree that allows them to practice as clinicians. Mm. And it was a course on how to diagnose and treat um, TOS. Um, there was a case like a couple of years ago in Canada where um, osteopaths, uh, like an osteopathy school, yeah, doctors go undercover, like medical doctors go undercover. And they arrested seven people because they basically admitted a diagnosis. They said like your lungs are not, you have like a lung hypermobility or like wrong location or something. And then you need to do these and these and this movement and I'll give you manual therapy. So they admitted a diagnosis and did a treatment and they got arrested. The guy got a $370,000 fine. And this guy's online and promoting this to millions of people. And it's like, Apparently in the States, it's really oily because you can always deny and say that we're not actually treating, the, giving yeah. the diagnosis, but you can skirt around. So there's a law and what he's doing is between you and I is like, it is, he can't do that. He's practicing like a physical therapist and teaching people to do fast physical therapy, which he's not qualified to do. And the info he puts out is actually bad, Yeah, <laughs> but there's no way to accept if he does something that really pisses off the authorities and they're, they're going to invest and do like a, an undercover sting operation, which honestly <laughs> I'm talking about it and it sounds completely ridiculous and like overkill. Yeah. There's no way. So, cause the law's there, but it's not enforceable in a practical manner. So I think we, as professionals, we do have a responsibility to do it because no one else is going to do it. Mm. And and, and also it's like when I do my job, a lot of most of what I do is, well, I'd say like 50% of what I do is correcting unhelpful beliefs. And the studies show Absolutely. that it comes from the healthcare practitioners most of the time. Yeah. yeah. So I'm actually doing my job. I'd argue and making my, I'm doing my job for free basically. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it is crazy. I, I find the same with coaching people. Like a large part of my job is having to correct stuff or address things that people have heard that um just just aren't things worth worrying about you know a lot of it is just trying to strip stuff away that they've got weighing them down that's worrying them 
and that yeah. uh, that actually isn't really something that they need to be be thinking and worrying about and uh it, it's crazy that that has to take up so much of the time that's being spent working with a professional who should be able to just get straight into to helping you yeah it's almost like you know i don't know who's, which scientist it was it was one of like the most published scientists and he said that you could summarize nutrition science in like two sentences i think it was like eat a lot of eat varied food um not to transform uh eat a lot of vegetables and don't eat too much something like that and he's like yeah that's like about 95 percent of nutritional science i think yeah. you could say the same about fitness and rehab like for fitness it would be like train hard and often but have rest days yeah that's honestly it's pretty much and like there's all these systems and i mean obviously it is helpful at an elite level but i think sometimes we get cut off in the weeds and forget that for most people it's even showing up in the gym that's the biggest challenge yeah yeah i don't know, like the consistency part of it makes up the 90 plus percent of, of what i see in terms of the people who i train that that get yeah. the best results um but just to, to stay on topic about that you know calling people out to tie it into a post that you put up today in tandem with was it functional memology about the toxic positivity yeah. thing yeah yeah so i actually i had thought about this concept long before i ever started posting memes or anything like that or, or addressing any of the the bs majorly in the industry and uh i had never i had never heard the term toxic positivity before but it actually um it actually summarizes it perfectly because it is this concept that I see on social media that that is really prevalent in fitness and in general of everything just needs to be positive vibes all the time. And if you are addressing an issue that people don't want to hear about because it brings up some of the bad stuff in the world, well, then you're a hater or you're pessimistic or you're overly negative yeah. and like it's just crazy to me because how would it, things ever get better how how can you know that there is a problem if you're ignoring it exists in the first place and um you know i think your your post was addressing some of these some of these tweets and and posts we're starting to see now from big wigs in the fitness space who are basically saying that if you call out misinformation you're like a, a drama queen who's just using conflict as a way of, of building a following base and to me, it, it seems like a scapegoat for them. I, I've noticed that it's conveniently always people who have been posting misinformation who put those things <laughs> yeah. up. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, I just hate it. And I, I think also like you were talking about the good vibes only. That's, that's actually how I first heard of the term toxic positivity. And yeah. to me, it was always like, what if you go to a funeral? Yeah. Are you going to chat? <laughs> As grandma because she's crying <laughs> makes it's no like sense and the, the people who go to the holocaust memorial and get a selfie yeah almost and yeah to me i don't know i just don't see it that way because maybe it's because i'm from the scientific area but even before i i read a lot of plato as a um as a teenager and uh, i don't agree with most of what plato does but the idea that you know not is acquired through a healthy debate is i think like one of the ideas that resonates the most for me mm. and just putting yourself above a critique in the name of niceness. I think it's stupid. Yeah. It's kind of a way of like bubble wrapping your brain yeah. in the world where, you know, it needs to get better and it gets better through challenge. It would be the same as saying like, you know, don't exercise cause you're going to get hurt. It's like, don't exercise your brain. Don't question. It's, it's just, it's, 
counterproductive to growth. And ironically, I think a lot of people who say that are people who are going to be like, um, like growth promoting individuals are going to be like, Oh, uh, you know, like the business guys or the like, Oh, you got to need to cut out the toxic people in your life. And yeah. by toxic, they mean people who don't like support you hundred percent of the time when you're being a misogynistic twat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, you, yeah, you're, we're not objectives. We're our biggest cheerleaders. You sometimes usually except like if you're the press person, but usually you need people to, you know, bounce back and tell you, Hey, what you did maybe wasn't the best thing. And that's how you, you grow and learn. Yeah. And, um, and also I think the idea of like always being positive, it works in theory if everyone has good intentions, but I don't remember. I think it's in like war. Like it's like a, an extrapolation of game theory to war where they're like, you always assume that someone's a rational agent, but the problem is that usually the person that's declaring the war by the fact that they're declaring the war itself usually is not a rational agent. So like Putin, right. you can't use like rational arguments against him because what he's doing, it makes no sense. It's like the sign of a demented mind. <laughs> you can't be like, oh, just be positive. Just uplift people. It's like, yeah, he's like trying to destroy the planet. <laughs> some people i don't know i don't want to compare squat to putin obviously it's not the same scale of devastation it's not that bad it's not such a big deal but it's the same principle where someone's not acting rationally and you tried nicely it doesn't work he doesn't yeah. care it's like might as well attack his character because he does it all like over and over again and it's yeah. literally his job to promote good information and he's seen the comments like i know i have like verifiable info that he's seen the comments like yeah. i've pinned like 300 likes on on his own page and then he likes the comments under it that says like, ah, great job, Aaron. Don't listen to that guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He'll only reply to the positive ones. Yeah. And it's funny because I bet he justifies that. I'm doing it for mental health. And I think it's one of the least healthy mental thing ever. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, don't answer to the people who are, gonna, who are very negative and are, and are saying like, hey, I'm, I'm going to burn your house and, you know, saying you're, you're a trash person but yeah. if someone's like just post studies that contradict you and they like have a healthy disagreement mm. i think they're not a hater you're just wrong do you think <laughs> or might think be wrong yeah. do you think it's gone too far now <laughs> to where if he was to retract um so many of his opinions that you know people would actually stop following him i mean i'm kind of of the opinion that he's he's close enough to the mark with a lot of his statements that he could make some, some small revisions to them that would take away a lot of the kinesiophobia and he could still be helping people. It's not like liver King turning around tomorrow and saying, Hey, eat some vegetables and you cook your fucking meat, you know, um, Vigi King here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, no, I agree with you, honestly. And sometimes we, we joke on the, like with my friends were like, he's so close guys. He's so close. He's like edging. He's edging. Yeah. He's going to post he, like a good tweet soon. He even put up one the other day that was like, Oh, it was, it was nearly there. I think it was the one about like, uh, straight like back. deadlifts. Was it the deadlift one? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Functional change. It. He just changed two letters instead of straight back. He changed it to straight bar or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was perfect. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's coming close. And I, I, I even say is, it would be really good for his content because a lot of um, people, like if you look at Athlean X, he's running out of content and that's why he starts putting out bullshit. I think that's the main reason Athlean X started putting out content that's trash because before it was good. And even sometimes the titles directly contradict each other now. Yeah. Oh, totally. Like he's just running out of content, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that um, if Squat, you were to go like, hey, I've been a little misguided. I'm going to address this. 
be really upfront. Like America loves a comeback story. Like they mm-hmm. love it. I mean, I don't like look at where I don't know. I was gonna do a joke about Kim Kardashian, but whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> Is she a comeback story? Yeah, that's a joke. Yeah, um, <laughs> she had come on her back. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, no, but um, yeah, I, I think people would really applaud that. And again, he's not really that far. It's not like he has to throw it, throw out the baby with the bat water. It yeah. would be like, hey, learn with me, and he would have so much new content to post because he'd mm. have to basically review all his old posts. Like the, the work is done for him. But he, I think he won't. I don't know if it's from a place of insecurity or if it's just he's comfortable. Like he's probably a millionaire by now and you'd have to assume yeah i mean i hope so otherwise he sucks at business <laughs> and it's got monetized doing... two million yeah. people following you on instagram and he's yeah basically monetized this traditional formula so it, it must be really easy for him to be like yeah fuck it like i won't do it yeah like I, i'm kind of of the belief that you know i've seen it with other pages like knees over toes guy and it seems like I've seen a lot of pages get into that, you know, 100,000 followers mark with pretty decent content. And then it seems like to move beyond that, um, you need to really start not just watering stuff down, but like outright lying to people, but in a way that's telling them what they want to hear. Because I noticed I, I had um, uh, Mark from Certified Personal Truths on a couple podcasts ago. And, uh, you know, we both agreed that when we were in that functional training paradigm, it was a lot easier to get buy-in from people. People immediately thought that you knew your shift if you were telling them that, you know, you've got this asymmetry or this muscle isn't firing properly. And, you know, I've had lots of people come into me for training since I got more into the evidence-based stuff. Um, and they're almost pissed off at me when I'm trying to simplify things or, or tell them that they don't have stuff wrong with them. So it it seems like a lot of these guys are actually telling people what they want to hear, even if it's not what's actually in their best interest. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree with you. There's a, and again, I think a lot of trainers are doing it like not on purpose. Mm, It's just, it works and they're congratulated by with clientele and money to do the, the wrong thing. Right. Yeah. Um, a lot of my um, friends critique the Ani Badger project. I don't think it's all bad. I don't know if you're familiar. No, I'm not. They're like, uh, they market to physios and trainers on, okay. on how to find your niche. Mm-hmm. It's like a business coaching uh, page. All right. And I don't think it's ill will. And I think a lot of it is good. Like they're trying to get physios to work for themselves and, you know, monetize. But a lot of their, on the other hand, like a lot of the, the advice that they have is basically to, they say that it's like showing how you're relevant, but it's mostly saying like, hey, you can't do this yourself. <laughs> you need me. Don't put like, you yeah. know what I mean? It's, I find Create that a problem just, for years. people that only you can yeah. solve. Yeah. And there's some people that do it well that are with them. And there's some that I feel like I've taken a turn for the worse where they're literally saying like, hey, you can't. I, there was a post that was literally like, hey, you can't do that yourself. <laughs> mm. I, I don't know. I take, I take offense to that because I think um i came i came up with this analogy recently on, on a podcast where it, it, i think physios and coaches are are more they're not like uh someone who's going to do the thing for you or mm. they should be like good ones there should be more like a travel agent where you know if you need to do something really hard like go to north korea you probably need a travel agent otherwise you're going to get murdered or deported or something <laughs> but if you're uh, go if to you're north going korea, to america yeah if you're going to america you don't need to 
right? It just it depends on your goal. And if you've ever been, if you're an Indonesian, you don't need an Indonesian tour guide, mm. um, but they help like the travel agent. They, they can help you locate what you need. And then you're like, hey, this is what you do. And if you ever go back, you can go back on your own. Or you can, if you liked it, you can come back to the travel agent. But yeah. it's like, you don't need, to need it for every trip. You don't need it for every purpose. Like a lot of people can train on their own if they have the basis. And usually the trainer can teach yeah. them a few lessons. It's just some people like, I have a soccer coach and I'm, 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 I'm like 30. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I know how to kick a soccer ball. It's just, it helps for motivation. It helps for like, Hey, I actually have to show up to practice. Yeah. Um, motivation is very important. It's just sometimes I think coaches make themselves um, needed for the wrong reasons. Yeah. And it's, it's tough. I think that if somebody wants to, if, if somebody wants to be, um true to being evidence-based and being honest and ethical with people they need to accept that they're not going to maximize their profits i think that as long as there's people selling an easier magic bullet magic beans type solution that's always going to be an easier avenue because you've got a bigger audience of people to sell to because most people when they come into either fitness for the first time or they're getting pain somewhere they want to believe that there is a quick fix solution to it. They want to believe that they can just buy a foam roller and, and roll on that a couple of times and they're never going to have any pain again. Or they want to believe that they do like the, uh, the classic one from years ago with six pack shortcuts, you know, like get a six pack in I don't know, six weeks or whatever it was he was selling. Um, and I think you just need to accept that, you know, you're not going to be able to compete with those people, but if, if you're okay with the fact that that means that, you know, you're maybe going to be happier with yourself as a person, then that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I've made that choice like a long time ago, but it does suck sometimes when you're like, Hey, this PT or this trainer is doing bullshit. And yeah, it's like, it's like making seven figures. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's almost like you're, you're playing like a game of monopoly or something like that, where, you know, you're, you're trying to do your best to play within the rules, but you can see some guy has all the cards behind his back and is, is you know, putting some extra little things on the board when you're not looking and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So, like, given that we've been talking about um, all of the, the issues within the industry, both in MSK and, and fitness, do you see any, any kind of a, a change that could happen in our lifetimes that would really improve the industry for the next generation of people who are going to be consumers or coaches? Um, I think it could go three ways. So um, I've actually, okay. So first way would be from the public. So like a bottom up approach. And I think it's going to be a combination of all threes, but okay. um, it would be where um, people just demand that people post their references. Okay. You know, like I had to do it in school. If you went to university, like you can't just post a, a 1500 essay, a 1500 word essay and be like, oh, this is my opinion, by the way, or cite like Wikipedia. You know what I mean? You have to provide references. I think this needs to translate to daily life, not daily life. Like I don't want you to cite studies when you go to the grocery store, when you're putting up information online, especially if you're a big page. Right. I think it should be the norm. And if you don't, you should be questioned, like kind of like almost like a new set of ethics and morals. And it sounds like a bit maybe far-fetched or idealistic, but I mean, how, how long did you, do you think it took for, um, for us to do this, like with a little pinky when we're eating in the UK, like, you know, keeping your pinky up when you're eating it took a while, right. I, between that and the invention of the fork, 
but we do it now. <laughs> like some people do it now, you know, and there's like, you know, put your elbows on the table. Yeah. I think it just be, needs to be the equivalent, like the ethics of the internet and uh, the internet has been mainstream for what, like 30 years. Mm. I'm fairly confident at some point, if the culture pushes in the right direction, it can be become like an expectation. So I think the public needs to ask it and just be skeptical of people who don't provide any evidence. Right. right? And if people get pissed when you ask for it, they're probably not a good source in my opinion. Uh, second way would be for that to be just a norm for content creators, right? For like, I try to, every time I make a claim, I try to have something to back it up. And I think it's become more, at least in my circle, I think it's become more mainstream because maybe because of some of the, so the self-policing and all that stuff. And if I'm seeing, like, I've only had my page for like six or seven months. If, if I can see an impact, if a lot of people do it, if it snowballs, it can become a movement just... I don't know, maybe the way Me Too happened. Like, I don't think Me Too <laughs> happened in a vacuum. Like, if Harvey Weinstein hadn't uh, done what he did to all these women, I, I, I think it would have still happened some way, but it was like a mm. kind of, of a watershed moment. So maybe something, someone will say something very atrocious, atrociously wrong, and then maybe a watershed moment will happen, and it's just like, hey, you didn't post any sources, this fucked up thing that happened can happen now. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe some quack will kill enough people. <laughs> Maybe that's, some people would go and deliver diet and die. And then it's like, hey, you need to cite your sources now. Yeah, that's that's my <laughs> my personal not. opinion on what's going to happen. But let me get your, you had a third one as well, did you? Yeah, so there's some papers that have been done at MIT regarding uh, how you could curb the algorithm to, um, you know, kind of prevent misinformation a little bit. Right. One of the ways that was explored, and it gets really tricky uh, ethically, but it would be crowdsourcing, um, like fact checking, basically. Okay. So you put info randomly put into the meat grinder, uh, and then people they, they see that like people as a whole tend to be good at picking up information. It's just the people that are bad tend to overshare it and drive the algorithm crazy. So if you had some people that were like, "Hey, like obviously this is misinformation," um, it could probably you know curb it a little bit. It wouldn't be perfect, but again, there's some tweaks. That's just one example. There's some other studies on how to do it. Um, you could. Sorry, you know how when you mentioned COVID, there's like a flag. You could have a like a flag for uh, this information isn't backed up by any evidence, or maybe they 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 give you a bonus if you have resources like uh, references. Yeah, listed. Yeah. There could be like a tab in the algorithm. You know how you can tag people. Maybe you can tag references. You know, I don't know, but there's some things you could do to the algorithm, and that you can test that really easily with, um, you know, uh, Facebook has. Um, right. a department that's specifically for this, right? Where they can test stuff in a vacuum and see, does this help with the engagement of this, whatever? Do people, how do people react to this? It would mm. be kind of, you know, a lot of thing, but I think it could be done at the algorithm level. So basically the bottom-up approach, public needs to be asked for more references, the algorithm, but again, the algorithm should reward um, reference posts with good info. We could yeah. probably find a way to tweak that a little bit. Obviously it won't be perfect and then punish misinformation more severely. Uh, Facebook tried to do it, but they were really lenient on how how severe they would be because they saw it would drag down the engagement too much. Right. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I think the law, I think lawmakers need to be more severe against huge corporations that have a disproportionate amount, uh, disproportionate effect on society. Mm. But then again, it also goes back to the public having a bottom up approach and being more demanding of references and like less rewarding of bad info, and then the content creator taking up taking it up upon themselves to um you know self-police themselves and make sure what they're doing is good by you know fact checking themselves that's why i ask people to provide references right it's not because i don't think you know what you do it's just it's kind of like 
um, putting your blinker when there's no one. When I'm on an empty road at 3 a.m., when I'm driving, I still put my blinker on because that way I know I'm not going to forget when I do it in traffic. You know what I mean? And sometimes yeah. there's someone, but I didn't see them, but my blinker was on. So they saw me turn. Whereas that yeah. would have been an accident. The same way some person can share misinformation without uh, knowing it. You know, they might have good intentions. They just didn't know. And because they checked, they'll know, hey, you know what? I was wrong. And that's happened a couple of times to me. I was doing a random post and I was like, oh, you know what? I was wrong about this. So I didn't post or I modified my post. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I, I think like, you know, I, I think it's really more important for the really egregious or, you know, outlandish claims that are being made. Like, you know, that that account Human Garage, which is probably like the craziest shit I've seen and yeah. maybe ever on, on social media. I yeah. don't know if I've ever seen anything as ridiculous as the stuff they're putting up. You know, like, I think if somebody puts up something like a, a very well... um understood concept that's been backed up for decades now like progressive overload or something like that i don't really feel like a citation is needed for that but yeah if somebody makes a claim like i i can massage the depression out of your body that requires a citation you know yeah um so it makes yeah. more sense for me for you know like you know anything that radically goes outside what is what is known to be pretty well uh, established in like the scientific literature. Yeah. You know, these guys need to be taken down specifically. Like I was going to name them spe specifically because yeah, the, it's crazy to me that they could keep growing and not getting reported. Mm. Cause people are reporting them for misinformation daily and nothing's happening. It's, I yeah. don't know how that's possible. Well, I think to go back to what you were saying about like the potential ways of, of improving the industry, to me, I think one of the points that you made there about like um, like social media companies themselves actually getting involved in the process probably seems like the most likely thing that's going to work. But um, as you were saying, I think unfortunately that's actually not going to happen until something potentially catastrophic happens that really damages their reputation and in turn their profits. Um, yeah. So, like one example uh, that uh, the, now catastrophic in in the sense of like a sporting season, but not to people's health. Uh, was a, a coach I know who is involved in a strength and conditioning association. Um, they got it to the point where you had to have their accreditation to be able to work with uh, sporting teams. And I was really curious about how that that happened because that's just not the case at all over here. Anybody can call themselves a strength and conditioning coach um and work with super high level athletes and he said the way it happened was that um some guy was working with a really high level team and uh was kind of masquerading as like a sports scientist slash performance expert and was giving them a supplement um and i don't know what was in the supplements i don't know if it had like testosterone in it or what but um whatever was in there uh, the whole team got popped for doping and they they missed the entire season. Obviously, Jesus. when that happens, shareholders get really pissed off and say, how in the blue fuck could this have happened? Looked into who the guy was and turned out he had no relevant qualifications and it just blagged his way into the job. And they're like, yeah. okay, that's absolutely crazy. This can never happen again. From now on, you have to have a relevant qualification. I would imagine in the case of 
you know, social media and some of the crazy stuff that we're seeing, I don't know if somebody has to die from really bad nutrition information or like uh, uh, there, apparently there was um, uh, somebody here in Ireland who punctured somebody's lung by doing needling wrong. And it made the, uh, the insurance for physios go up drastically if you were using needling as part of your practice because of that. Um, but uh, yeah, I just, I just feel like something like that is going to have to happen where it's in the financial interest of social media companies to police this stuff. Yeah. Um, I think so. And I, I, I'd be surprised if it happens for the right reasons, right? You know, cupping is illegal in France, which I'm not a big fan of cupping, but um, I was looking into why. And right. if you look at the statement, they say it's not supported by the evidence and there's documented risk. It's true. It's like basically you're creating a hickey for something that hasn't shown to consistently be <laughs> yeah. placebo. But I looked to it more and you know that France has like a big history of Islamophobia. Right, yeah. Do you know who does the like where cupping is from in France? It's from Islamic people. Uh, I, I don't know if that's the correct term, but like Muslim people, sorry. Um, so it's probably more for anti-Semitic reasons than it is for to support the evidence. Like I'm glad that it's not allowed, but it's still problematic in that in that regard. Right. Um, but yeah, and I, I don't know what it's gonna take because if you look at Facebook, they there's literally documentation of them inciting a civil war. And like Mark Zuckerberg knew about it. It was like, oh, what if we, people were like, you should do this and this to curb it. And he asked like, oh, that's interesting. What's it going to do to the engagement? And they <laughs> say, oh, it was probably going to hurt it. And he's like, all right, well, we'll keep that in mind. And oh, like a, a whole cyborg. civil war, like, yeah, I don't know how many people died, but like it was more than like 10,000, which is just pretty yeah. fucked up if you think about it. So if that's not going to change, it really, what my, my only, the way I would see it would be like someone very famous and visible actually dying from it like right. i'll give you a bad example but like if britney britney <laughs> dies from some quack that could do it like white woman yeah, yeah. sweet darling yeah. been abused by the system mm. i i don't i wish britney no harm britney, <laughs> like, if that happens you're, you're I gonna think be that's the a good number one suspect if she gets killed by a dry needling lung <laughs> oh, Jesus. <tomorrow>. in her <laughs> sleep yeah. uh no she's been through enough um, yeah, hope not. Not her, but like no one. Hopefully, no one. Hopefully, nobody. Um, okay, so maybe on to like a more more positive spin. Uh, hashtag toxic positivity. Um, what what would be your your biggest area of interest currently in terms of uh, research reading? Is there anywhere like you'd really love to see um, more research being done and like a topic that looks quite promising or? Yeah, uh, sure. Um, the ACL literature has always been what I really like because physios have a direct impact that's very measurable. Like we do have an effect. Like a lot of what physios do can be fluff or not helpful, or you know, people can take care of it on their own. But for ACLs, I think we're extremely relevant. And the research that's been coming out is really interesting on uh, how it heals. So the Philbay 2022 paper, well, like a few months ago, Stephanie Philbay had a paper that showed that. I think it was 56% of uh, ACL complete tears regrow on their own. The thing that we don't know, and there's ongoing research by Thomas Cross that's been done on this right now. Uh, we don't know like who's going to heal the ligament. Right. And it makes a major difference because people who don't get the surgery, but whose ligaments heal, do the best. Right. People who don't get the surgery and whose ligaments doesn't heal, they do the worst. And then in between those, the people who get surgery early or late. Right. So basically, if we can find out who's going to get, who's going to heal 
like what characteristic they need. Like maybe it's their age, maybe it's their BMI, maybe it's if they have inflammatory conditions, the type of tear, and also what kind of bracing that we use. Because some of the protocols that we use now uh, are like we use a flexible bracing. So bracing that allows you to go like 90 and then you kind of wean, wean in more degrees of, of freedom. Mm. It would be useful because it's, first of all, it's very cost effective to use a brace in the first few days and as opposed to just getting a surgery. Yeah. But it'd be useful to prevent long-term instability. So, because some recently, um, a friend of mine asked me, um, they were seeing a physio, and the guy said, uh, "Brace it, because we don't we want to prevent uh, long-term instability because you probably have a great three uh, tear." And he asked me, and it was one of the rare instances where I was puzzled because I never heard that. But if we look at the emerging literature on ACLs, it would make sense that bracing could potentially. Uh, regrowth of the tissue mm. the truth is we don't know we know that short-term people do better without a brace like the faster you walk them the less you immobilize the better they do but is it at the cost of long-term instability we we honestly we just don't know not right now so i would really like more data on this and uh, other data on like uh what do you call it tendon and ligament hypertrophy because we we don't know we have literally no studies that just looks at people after they're in the puberty and yeah to see if the ligaments actually adapt. We know that the ligaments probably maintain their homeostasis. Like if you train hard, they're going to kind of rebuild and regrow kind of like a, think of it as like a forest in an aquarium. It can't grow past a certain point, right? Mm. But it can make, if you burn some of the trees in the aquarium, it sounds really weird. Like think of it, a closed enclosure, it's going to regrow. So it can't go grow bigger, but um, there can't be more trees if it's saturated, but you can maintain it. If you, and if you um so i think that's my bias right now but we just need more research to see if we can make that enclosure bigger so that more and more there's more trees in the forest if that makes sense right to yeah. make your ligaments bigger we just don't know to be honest we know what happens if you tr start training really early before puberty um mm. but as adults we don't know yeah like i find um the acl tear area quite interesting as well because it, it seems to be one area that um is a bit of an outlier in terms of of from my understanding anyway how a lot of other injuries happen and and how they heal in the sense that uh it does seem to be one area if i'm not mistaken where asymmetry actually does seem to matter and um you know movement yeah. to a certain degree like you know dynamic knee valgus when the uh the the knee is in a so more extended position um is a is a pretty good predictor uh, of acl tears yeah valgus is when it caves in so it's hip yeah. abduction knee abduction and then hip internal rotation yeah um yeah the asymmetry is is a tricky one so we used to think it was imbalanced between the hamstring and the quads like once pulling too far in the front too much in the back that's been debunked by a metanalysis in 2020 Mm, yeah, more like the, the quad strength from left to right. Yeah. So that's the dominant one we use now. Um, but my bias personally is that it's just a really easy way to measure what your original strength was before the injury. So you didn't get injured because your quad was too strong on one side. It's more that you have a deficit that you're trying to get back to after the injury. So it's not necessarily an imbalance. It's more, I would phrase it more as a weakness. Mm. And I think if we go back to the... If we, when we acquire more research, we're going to see what we saw for other imbalanced research and see that if you look at body weight to, um, 
uh, strength to body weight ratio, we're going to see a stronger predictor of injuries. Right. Right. Cause we used to do that with all muscles. We used to look at abductors versus adductor research, uh, strength, sorry. And say like, Hey, your abductors are too strong. That's bad. But it's like, no, the abductors are just an indication of your general body weight. And it shows that you're, if we look at, instead of the adductor, we put the body weight, we see a better prediction of injuries. Mm. So yeah. I, I think that's what's going to happen with the asymmetry research. But for now, clinically, it's extremely useful to do that. Like I use it all the time. I have like a machine to check it, but if what I can do, and I've, I'm doing that with a patient right now that I, I did like a, a discovery call with, it was one of the rare cases where I could do this. I, I said like, you're going to measure before the surgery. So we know what your original strength is right now. We're going to compare. Right. Cause there is, there is some research that, that did that. They show better prediction. If you know what the actual original strength was rather than mm -hmm. the strength after they've been walking on crutches and de being deconditioned from their sports. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause it's a better reflection of what they used to be able to do to move yeah. their weight around. Yeah. And what about, I, I saw some of that research uh, that came out a while ago about the genetic um, influence over ACL injuries as well. It was a, a twin study that came out, right? Yeah, I think it came out uh, two years ago. It was the Swedish Twin Registry. So if people don't know, the for some reason, Sweden has the largest twin registry on earth. It's been going on for like years. And um, they saw that uh, ACL tears were 69% genetic. If we use the mathematical models that we use to basically determine if something's genetic. So what they do is you look at homozygotic twins. You compare that to heterozygotic twins. So basically identical twins, non-identical twins. And then you compare it to uh, people that, um, that are not twins. So like brothers and sisters yeah. and random people in the street. And then if you look at like how common they are between the twins versus a random person in the street versus a brother, you can, you know, with simple equations to be like, hey, if all twins who have a tear have a tear and then people in the street, you know, there's like a 15% chance that they have a tear. There's a strong chance that it's mostly genetic, you know, and they came out saying that it's probably like around 69% genetic. Mm. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of also like, I think women are way more, something like four to six times more at risk of ACL injuries. Um, but there's a lot of reasons behind that. One of them is probably that women tend to train less yeah. uh, in terms of strengthening because they're told that you're, they're going to look manly or bulky. Mm. And the, one of the main predictors of, you know, ACL recovery is ACL, like it's quad strength. So if you have small quads, which men tend to have bigger quads, it probably has an impact on it. Yeah. And sometimes we'll have um, less access to strength and conditioning as well. Yeah. It's terrible. You've seen those NCAA pictures, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, that didn't really surprise me at all. It's terrible. At least at Miguel, I don't know if we're, um, if it's like that everywhere, but um, women and men have access to the same facilities, which was cool at the collegiate level. Mm, yeah. And I think in China, it's interesting in China, I don't know if you're aware, but one of the reasons their medals went up that much is that they saw that it was cheaper to invest in women because the gap was so basically they, they had no funding. <laughs> so it's like when people donate to universities, a lot of people donate to Harvard and Oxford. They, the difference is like, it's a drop in the, in the water. In yeah. The they've already got loads coming in. Yeah. If you give to a small school, you're going to literally change their lives. Um, yeah. And that's like when there's a billionaire that did that recently in Canada and people were wondering why it's just, yeah. you can do the same thing with women. It's easier to bridge the gap between men and, and women in terms of financing than it is to give a substantial advantage to men who are already overfunded at the professional level yeah. in general. Um, so uh, the, the last thing I wanted to ask you was about if, 
there is anything you can think of that would be like the, the biggest thing that you used to hold as a belief that you've changed your mind on recently? I know these things don't always happen, um, yeah. you know, immediately because, you know, usually more evidence has to come out for us to very slowly do a 180. Um, but can yeah. you think of anything like that? Yeah, um, probably the the Impelzeri papers from 2020, oh, the if I'm not mistaken. Ones? The Nordics, but he also did the one that I don't know why I didn't get traction. But before that, he published one that was about it was another critical reappraisal of systematic reviews. Right. And it was about load management. So we know that mm. load management is definitely um, of a risk of injury if you, it's done improperly. So, like if you overtrain, if there's large spikes in your training. So, if you go from one practice to like 10 practices in a week, there's a much higher chance of getting injured than if you build that gradually. Yeah. We know that. And it, it makes sense, right? If, if I ask you to run a marathon tomorrow, there's probably a high chance that you're going to get injured if you don't run ever. Yeah, your tissue needs time to adapt. Exactly. We, we don't know if it's, yeah, probably the tissue, yeah. Um, but what Impellers already showed, and I'll tell you the prevailing logic before, we, we used to use this thing called the acute to chronic ratio. It's yes. something that I think it's Bissett and Gabbett came, came up together in like 2015. Uh, they're the big low management guys and their data does translate, but it's mostly based on elite rugby players. And we see that it's not applicable. So if someone's coming back from an injury, how do you go? Well, the logic first used to be that you go, you don't increase by more than 30% of what you usually do uh, every week Yeah. over the last month. So let's say if you do three practices every week, you can increase by one. If you increase by like one practice, instead of doing like a half practice, your risk of injury at a professional level would be, uh, increase substantially. Whereas if you go, you stay under there, you, mm. there's no real big spike of your, in your injury risk, according to that data. Problem is we see that it doesn't really translate to lay people probably because they're not as close to their genetic potential as elite athletes, yeah. uh, possibly because it's hard to multiply like one zero by one point thirty means you can't increase at all. Like, is that what it means? Yeah. Like if you're doing nothing, you can't increase anything or, cause it's like an increase by infinity. Mm. Um, same thing for people that are injured. And uh, so that's just from the logical point of view. But what Impelzeri showed was that even if you look at the data, we know that, again, low management can inform us on who's going to get injured, but modifying it doesn't seem to help for injury reduction. So being right. like, hey, you're going to keep it at under a 30% increase per week uh, doesn't seem to be curbing injury. There's a lot of reason behind that. One of them was a running study that was done recently. And if you look at the conclusion, they say we can't like giving a gradual running program doesn't reduce injury risks. And it's true. But if you actually look at the paper, there was 99% of the runners. I'm not exaggerating. That was literally the figure. None of them were adherent to the program. So no one respected what was given. So okay. is it not, not working because people are not sticking to the program? Is it not working because human are stochastic and we So this was a study where they they weren't directly supervising people. They just said, go off and do this. Yeah. They would have like meetings and check back if they kept the program, like basically right, educational yeah. program. I'd say it has like uh, what we would call ecological validity because usually uh, running coaches is, is done distance, oh, yeah. right? Mm. You don't actually coach with run with the guys, except like yeah. some types of running clubs. Um, but yeah. It, and if you actually, if you look at like, um, uh, the way we encourage people to exercise, we don't seem to be as good as we think, but we can have an impact. 
sorry, my cat's in the microphone. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's it. We don't know why it's not working necessarily. We just know that right now we can't say conclusively that acting on low management uh, or at least regulating it very finely is good. Obviously, if you're injured and I tell my athlete, like, maybe right now that you're hobbling is not the best time to go back to play. Yes, we do have an effect. The question is more, uh, the, the conclusions of Impelizari was more about, can we quantify it in a way that's enactable? Mm. I think we can, and that might be a bit weird, but we can qualitatively affect load management, mm. making like yes or no decisions, but being like, hey, we're going to affect your running practice by 0.5%. I don't think we're at that level now, and we need a lot and a lot of, of research. Um, yeah, and I think, yeah, the, the best way we have is the that, that niggle study. I think it's the Wallen 2020 study where they saw that if you get a small niggle, like a a no time loss injury. So something basically that you tweak yep. and you feel uncomfortable uh, that week after there's a big increase in your risk of injury. I think it's four to six times. Mm. So my conclusion from that paper, since the risk of injury kind of goes back to normal after the, that one week is usually like probably your best guess is to listen to your body. And if you feel like a tweak, maybe it's not the time to PR, maybe like scale back your weights that day, see how it feels. Maybe if there's inflammation, let it pass. And if it's fine and it's still thereafter, it's probably not a big deal. And if it if the pain hasn't improved, maybe consult someone. If the, mm -hmm. that makes sense, yeah. Um, and actually, I uh, just something that has occurred to me that I'd be interested to get your perspective on because it's something that people ask me about a lot. And I know what my my kind of uh, strategy with it tends to be, but a big question that gets gets asked a lot is you know when it comes to things like chronic pain like say somebody yeah. who who is running and they get knee pain um or you know tightness and pain in their calf or whatever um a really common question people will ask is like when is it safe or when is it okay to push into that um or or when is that something that you know i need to actually stop and take a break or or go and do something else like cycling for a week or something like that. Do you have like a, um, a framework that you work through with people to, to make that decision? Yeah. Um, I mean, it really depends what they're afraid, afraid of. Um, if they're afraid of like an actual injury or breaking tissue, usually the more chronic the pain has been there, the less likely that is. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously there's some exceptions, but in, yeah, in general, if the tissue heals pretty well and after that, if it's, broken like you're not making it worse if it makes sense yeah like, i went to the study on this in 2016 where if you have like tears if you keep working out or doing heavy labor it's not a risk factor for progression of the rotator cuff tear smoking is it's like a two like a twice it increases by a factor of two but wow. again heavy labor doesn't Interesting. Um, yeah but th there's a lot of studies on this like that and if the um, there's two studies that have been done on this once in Caravaggi in 2006, who showed that basically he took images of people when they were pain-free, like MRIs, right? Mm. They were pain-free. They never, never had low back pain. And then they, they told him, Hey, when you have severe low back pain, walk back in here. <laughs> and then they took imaging and it was only in, uh, I think it was in only 4% that there was actual, like a difference in the images. Right. Structural changes. Like, yeah. And we don't even know if that damage is linked to the, the low back pain because a lot of changes are asymptomatic, mm -hmm. right? So 
Um, what that means again is that it's rarely structural. Obviously, if you tore something that, that you know, if you, if your knee is out, there's probably something. Um, mm. but if the pain has been there for a while, it's unlikely that it's related to the tissue. It's probably more that your nervous system has remained sensitive and that whatever mechanical chain that might have happened, which again is unlikely mm. is probably more like a risk factor for pain. So it's not that you're making the damage worse. It's more that you're irritating something that's irritable. Right. Uh, I would compare it to usually I, I try to compare like, for instance, disc changes that compare it to hypertension. It's not that you have hypertension that you have a heart attack. It's just a little more likely and exercise is probably going to help with that. You know, it makes it less irritable. It makes you less likely to have a heart attack. So yeah. same thing with the, the structure of your back, for instance. So it's really case dependent. Usually when people are not sure if it's damaged, I tell them to see like a qualified health professional that can help them sort them out. But after that, if it's all they want, sometimes I have patients, I'm like, Hey, that's not a big deal. You should probably train within that range and mm. you're, you're, you're good to go. So that's about the damage, right? It's really important to rule out that someone's damaging something. And sometimes even if they're, sometimes they're afraid, you can tell them you're, they're fine and they're not going to believe you. So say, seeing like a, someone that's very qualified, even if you know that they're fine is helpful. It reassures them. Do you mean like going away and getting imaging done or? Sometimes, but uh, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, like if you're a trainer, you want to refer to a physio or like oh, right. a, yeah, a yeah. big wig or something, you know, sometimes that's all people are going to say. They want to see that specialist. They want to see sure, it. Yeah. And you're like, okay, just make sure it's one that's not going to nocebo them. After that, if you're talking about pain, because I see most people that have been dealing with chronic pain for a while, they're afraid of having um, setbacks or flare-ups, sorry. Um, for them, it's more like, it's quite difficult. Um, I think that's where like physios are kind of helpful or good chiros or something or pain informed coaches mm. it's more that you need to know like, like what their pain pattern is so there's some people that they can train as hard as they want they won't have pain and the next day they feel terrible yeah so you have to be more careful with those it's like case dependent there's some people they have a lot of pain and it goes away immediately and they're fine like they can do whatever um but again general rule and very very general rule because again it depends case by case and depends what the person wants and likes like if the person hates any pain Obviously, probably training is not going to be super enjoyable. Yeah. Um, but if they're like, hey, I have pain and it goes away and they're fine training, that's good. But very general rule, like a one or two out of 10 in terms of pain that goes away immediately is extremely safe. Yeah. If it lingers, but if it's not there the next day, it's usually fine. But what I tell people is if it's lingered more than a few minutes after tra training, you're probably better off taking off days in between loading that zone, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Um, and that's been like, there's, there's been shown to the beast method of meta-analysis in 2015, where it compared pain-free treatment to, um, exercise into pain a little bit. And it showed there's some small advantages in terms of disability in the short term. So what that probably means is that people, but the pain's not that better. So what that probably means is that people like they feel better, they feel more empowered. So they do more. Mm. And then they have a, you know, their level of pain doesn't change, but they're doing way more. So it's like, Hey, I'm going to run my 15 K instead of my 5 K. I'm going to have the same level of pain, but they know they're not causing any damage as opposed to the person who's afraid and it's just going to run 5k. And even though they wanted to run that 15k and they're going to have the same level of pain. So it probably improves the pain as well, just indirectly, if that makes sense. Right. Right. Yeah. The, uh, the process that I usually go through with people is if their pain gets worse after doing an exercise, uh, then I will try to do something like adjust the load, or if that doesn't work, maybe try a different exercise um, that uses a slightly different range of motion or different muscles or whatever. Um, and then, uh, you know, it, obviously if, if it gets better, then I see that as kind of like a, a green light. Um, yes, yeah, and then, you know, if it stays the same, 
then then usually I say to them that it's kind of up to them. You know, like if, if you feel like it's a tor- tolerable level of pain um, and you're 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 happy to continue, that's fine. But if you feel like it's affecting your life and you want to go see a professional like a physio or whatever, then that's absolutely fine as well. Yeah, I think that's terrific. That's probably exactly how I would do it if I if I were a trainer. Um, yeah, and again, especially since it's past that first week. First week, I tend to be very careful because there are some histological data that suggests, like for instance, if you have a tendinopathy, one of the theories is that it's a true tendinitis, so real acute inflammation that becomes goes out of control, and then it, the tendon remains sensitive after. So there's there's a biological plausibility that going really easy during that week. And just staying off is probably helpful, but past that one week, usually the inflammation is kind of mostly gone and it's right. more like tissue sensitization and then maybe some scar tissue that creates the pain. Mm. But so yeah, that first week is the only time I'd be really careful, especially if, if, you know, you're not specifically a physio, but even me, like, again, I tend to be like kind of a really careful that first week. The most I would give is pain-free isometrics. Mm. Um, Cause again, you, you want to give the chance to, the people, because sometimes people, they get like very acute pain, what we would call tendinitis. And then after they're fine, the inflammation has passed and they, they kind of weathered the storm. I just don't want to rob them of that chance. I'd rather wait one week to start like physio physio <laughs> than, yeah. um, you know, sacrifice that chance. Yeah. Give it the benefit of the day. Cool. Well, I think we've, we've worked through all of the, the topics that I wanted to talk with, with you. So, you know, thanks a million for your time and, um, if uh, if people are looking to find out more about you, obviously your physiotherapy services and your content, you know you're on Instagram at, at no bullshit physio. You've got a YouTube channel as well, right? Yeah, I'm dropping a huge video. Um, hopefully tomorrow. I'll try, but it's a lot of editing. Um, it's like probably going to be 30 minutes, and it reviews all the literature on barefoot running versus um running with cushion shoes and. Cool. Uh, basically forefoot strike versus heel strike. It's it's what's interesting is that review has had not been done. So <laughs> I realized right. I the last meta analysis was kind of late, and there's a couple of studies that came out. So basically, did a whole review for free, and it's going to be released on YouTube. It is a response to um, Paul Saladino, the carnivore MD, because he targeted me in a rant. <laughs> but uh, I will try to have chapters for people who want to skip that because I get pretty mean and vicious in there. <laughs> okay. Yeah, oh. there, there's a lot of references if you just want the education too. Great. Um, Twitter, you're on there as well, right? Yeah, talking to PhDs and getting owned. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what about, you know, if somebody wants to do some physiotherapy with you? Obviously, that'd be online if they're not in Canada. Yeah, there's a link tree in my um, bio if they want to contact me. And if sometimes if they just want to referral, I know a couple of good physios across the world. So if they want someone in person, I can do that too. But yeah, I do take, it's more like uh, consulting when I do it online. Uh, yeah. Basically, I tweet people's programs to make sure they can keep training without pain or within a way that's going to fit uh, as rehab. So I call myself like an injury consultant when I do that. Um, I really like doing that with coaches for physio, physio directly. I do it, but it's only with very select few clients because honestly, I don't have that much availability right now. But when I do, I do. It's just, it needs to be a dedicated patient that fits within the what I'm looking for, basically. All right, cool, cool. All right, well, thanks so much for your time, man. And uh, you're always welcome back on for another chat again. Yeah, I'd love to.